0: Hello everyone and welcome to this new episode of The London Circle. Recently a delegation of Muslim imams and scholars visited Afghanistan on a fact-finding mission. Today I'll be talking with Hamid Mahmoud, a member of that delegation and author, about what they saw, what they discussed, who they met, and what do they feel or think for the future in Afghanistan. Enjoy! The idea of uh, visiting Afghanistan uh, as scholars, imams, uh, community leaders and the such. I mean, the idea seems to be fairly novel. I have to say, in many people's estimations, it could be described as being somewhat brave. Maybe somebody even, even say a little bit reckless. But uh, nonetheless, it's uh, something I personally uh, admire. I personally think that it's... Uh, It's a much-needed step, Uh, and I think that uh, it's important that people, uh, amongst whom Muslims, but people generally, try their best to uh, break the uh, the blockade imposed on Afghanistan, whether it be media-wise, whether it be trade, whether it be finance, whether it be. um, So, so I think it's it's a good thing. But, but how did this idea come about, and why? To achieve what exactly
1: so uh, firstly thank you for uh, you know inviting me here but secondly and most importantly we've got to understand the actual beauty of this delegation is within its grassroots level and it's a muslim-led initiative so that's the first thing secondly it also follows uh, many members of parliament who have been to afghanistan but also general former general nick carter who's also mentioned very clearly that we must re-engage the Taliban. So following that, this delegation... There was also
0: Tobias Elmoud exactly, who yes. uh, also spoke out and said, well, maybe, you know, it's now time to uh, engage with the Taliban.
1: Absolutely. And, and he came in for quite a flag, I have to say. Exactly. And that's the unfortunate situation. Anyone who speaks about the reality on ground in Afghanistan, they are always, you know, spoke, I mean, they're always ridiculed. And I think that's the idea here, we need to speak out for what we see on ground roots level. And that's why it was about eight ulama who went from here. Um, Ulama from different strata of society. Some are imams, some are teachers, some are leading different organizations. And we went there to see the actual facts for ourselves. And it being a Muslim-led initiative, uh, the idea is for Muslims here to understand what is happening in Afghanistan, so that we can do um, you know whatever we can, whatever is in our power, for the innocent people, the innocent Afghans over there in Afghanistan. Question is, why do we do this? And response would be theologically, um, Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. You know he's made it very clear that the ummah, regardless of the boundaries, regardless of which ethnicities we belong from, belong to, we are one body. If one part hurts. You know, the remainder of the body cannot sleep, for instance. The Qur'an has made it very clear for us, innama al-mu'minuna you know, also, baynahum," that all believers, they are brothers and sisters, and they are merciful amongst themselves. As part of fulfilling our Muslim duty, we went there to find out what's happening to the brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. So
0: in a way, you could describe this delegation as a fact-finding delegation. Absolutely. Carrying the values that you just spoke of, of um, fraternity, of uh, brotherhood, of, you know, basically also, you know, my interest in this particular delegation, and I have to profess that it was about trying to ascertain what we uh, carry as notions regarding Afghanistan, what, which amongst them um, is close to the truth and which amongst them is not. Um, the suspicion is that a lot of what we hear about Afghanistan is um, there's there's a distance distance, uh, between it and the truth. But um, my interest in this is what is it that you're going to find out? So firstly, would you accept that the mission was essentially fact-finding? Second of all, you
1: tell me. What were you trying to find? What were the objectives? Yes. So there were two parts to this delegation, two segments. One was fact finding on behalf of Prosper Afghanistan, a new organization being set up as we speak. And secondly, on behalf of human aid and advocacy, we went out to do humanitarian work as well. Okay. So which included visiting an orphanage, sitting with the boys, sitting with them, listening to them. Some of them had, I mean, it was... Very painful. They some of them sang poetry for their parents who were killed in war. Um and just to add this point, I remember going to the orphanage. They in one classroom there were about thirty students, small room, not too big. And as we spoke to them, I asked one of our hosts, So where's their dining room? And where's their, you know, uh, where's their dormitory? And he said, by day, this same room functions as their dining room. And by night, this same room functions as their dormitory. So
0: this is basically their entire
1: life. This is their entire life in that room. So the the humanitarian aspect was very heartbreaking for me, um, especially being right close up to something we are never told of. And it's never spoken about in media. There's just propaganda about certain elements, certain people, certain groups within that country. But we've got to remember, there are 40 million people who reside in Afghanistan. And I believe that the media here in the West does not reflect the 40 million and their suffering that they are, you know, you know suffering. 40
0: million who have been through war upon war, upon conflict, upon occupation. Yes. I mean, the, the past, I don't know, 50 years probably in Afghanistan have been, have been absolutely untold difficulty.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I just, I've, I've been back for about a week and I still can't take my mind off some of the things I saw. Uh, some of the, you know, the suffering, the trauma, that the innocent people are facing because of that war, and what made it very painful for me the other day on, uh, you know, BBC Radio, there was some uh, security analyst um, who said, "Oh, this this delegation that has come back, uh, of course there is peace because Taliban are not bombing anymore." There was no mention of the carpet bombing, the drone strikes every day that took place. The drone strikes did not...
0: That often killed the people attending Mostly, wedding parties absolutely. and the social gatherings and the such. Yeah. Yeah. No mention of that.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it was sad. We were, were her children. They were explaining to us when we saw a drone, what they used to do on the ground. We hear about the drone strikes, but what do they do? They told us they had to cover their nails like this, okay? And they had to close their eyes and cover the nails on their feet because any kind of light that was reflected off them would send a signal to the drones that there is life here. So this, this is the level that they suffered on ground. I still cannot forget the face of this elderly man. I mean, we were driving and this elderly man came out of his house, broken, and very old, and he could barely speak. And he spoke about all his sons who were killed during this war. And for us in the West, it's just a notion of propaganda we don't think about actual human lives the rhetoric here is unbelievable to me and after seeing this for me it becomes even more painful you know do we really care about human life or is it just lives of certain ethnicities that matter more to us here in the west than every single human being
0: i mean it's uh, what, what you mention is heartbreaking i haven't been to afghanistan but i've been to other uh, war-stricken Um, regions unfortunately stricken by our own bombs and fighters and unfortunately um and um, it's it's utterly heart shattering i would say when children of the age of 9 10 11 tell you about how to avoid a drone yes. strike, yeah. or they be they they tell you intelligently and in quite you know in, in incredible terms how to detect and an, uh, you know a, a landmine or a, um, it, it, because you think that children shouldn't be aware of these things they shouldn't be but unfortunately in places like Afghanistan in my case like Iraq, Syria, other places, um, unfortunately this is all but uh, a very very common. Reality that children became so well versed in how to avoid uh, bombs and shells and uh, and the stuff. That's all fine and proper. But I also assume that you had meetings with officials, with uh, government officials, and you mentioned that those officials were also visited by some MPs yes. before you. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, I, I'd like to assume what kind of conversations happen. But let me, let me press you first and say you were received by, you know, you're given a friendly welcome, I'm pretty sure. Uh, firstly, because I know that the Afghani people are extremely warm, very welcoming, very generous, very hospitable. So I'm, I'm presuming that that's how you're received. But do you feel that having met officials in the government, and those in, you know, in streets and marketplaces. Do you feel that you were offered uh, sincere clarification as to what's happening, justifications as to why certain things are being done in a particular way? Do you feel satisfied that, that you were given that? Or do you feel that people were sort of holding back, maybe trying to give you messages so that when you go back home, you could speak on their behalf what's what was your
1: impression i was pleasantly surprised there was nothing of that and and actually quite the opposite when we met the foreign minister uh, uh molavi amir khan Muttaki, and also his spokesperson um molavi abdul qahar balchi one of the main things that he said to us was and i remember he had a similar white cup in front of him and he said if you see a white cup here in afghanistan then go back and just tell it as it is. Um, if you see a black cup, then say it as it is." And then he said, um, if you see something good here in our country, please relay it. If you see something bad, then relay that too. So this was the very first meeting we had with the, uh, with the, with the, with the ministry in Afghanistan, the very first meeting within the first hours of us landing. For me, that set the stage that they are honest, they are sincere. And if we see anything that you know, needs reporting um, you know, or needs critiquing, then we are open to do so. What I also felt in his, the discussions with him is a sense of demonization of the Afghan people and also the government. Some people here may think, oh, you know, is there such a thing as demonizing the Taliban? But they are people. They are humans. They have children, and even when it comes to girls' education, they too have girls. They have had to stop their own girls from being educated. And let's remember that. He he turned around, and he there was a kind of you know sense that I felt from him when he he stood up and he said, "Tell the people." And he said this in Urdu. Yeah, before he was talking in Pashto, then we were tr- getting translation through English, and there's a lot of you know languages, but he could speak a bit of uh, broken Urdu, and he said, "Tell the people." that Taliban insan ko nahi kata, which means that the Taliban do not eat people. We are not monsters. Tell them people that we are just like you. We have suffered war. We are fiercely independent people. We do not tolerate any form or shape of foreign intervention. And that's why we fight an elderly person corroborated this. And he said, look, we we will give up everything. He said, look, we have our homes in the villages. There we have our cows, our goats and our sheep. That's where we get our milk and our meat. We've built our own, we've dug our own wells and we grow our own crops. That's how we live as long as our land is free. And I could sense that sense of freedom. I have not felt in any country before, including the West. It was freedom of, you know, of the physical type but also intellectual freedom, where you could think freely and not be indoctrinated by ideologies that are being forced upon you, as we sometimes here have in the West. So I felt that sense of freedom. I remember at one point when we were uh, in, in prayer in, in a village somewhere, in a very small mosque, and I stood up and that freedom hit me, and I have not felt that anywhere before. These are people who refuse to be subjugated by others. And they have shown that in the past, you know, four decades of them standing up with barely any weapons to their names, with no, you know, not an inch close to the type of technology that the the Western nations, the Soviets or the Americans had. And yet they stood, they only had one thing, and that was their faith. And they clearly and proudly wear that on their shoulders.
0: I'll come back to the issue of girls' yes. education in a little little bit, but um, I'd like to explore this—the uh, the kind of sense of pride that comes uh, forth—and uh, not the ill pride, not the yeah, evil yeah. pride. No, We're course. talking about the the sense of uh, this what we call in Arabic Yes, this uh, sense of, um, of, of of freedom. Like you, you say, you know, when you're free of, of of all shackles, you become of that kind of stature. You fear nothing. You fear no one. Uh, and uh, obviously, I mean, we, we, I mean, this rolls off the tongue, that Afghanistan has been over the past 300, 400 years, you know, various attempts to occupy Afghanistan and to um, have been uh, have been made. Uh, obviously the most recent renowned um uh, was the American occupation that held for ten years was it or twenty years even twenty years and uh, and the one before it was the Soviet uh occupation and both came to uh, to to defeat uh, the uh, the way in which the Americans departed Kabul two years ago almost almost to the day we've just passed the the second uh uh, anniversary of that uh, scurry away from Kabul. Uh, the images of of those uh, of, th- of that uh, I, I believe are going to remain with us and going to mark uh, Afghanistan for generations to come. The question is that uh, with twenty years of being occupied by the Americans, what are the hallmarks of that? I mean what what, what are the physical, aesthetic, kind of really obvious elements? that remain of, of
1: those 20 years. Yeah, and just to um, echo what you were saying initially before coming on to that, um, they take someone, there's a poet uh, who they take very seriously, uh, who I really look up to as well, uh, Muhammad Iqbal, the, the poet of the East, as he's recognized as. He also traveled to Afghanistan in the 1930s, and he wrote a couple of poems. And just want to summarize here that he spoke about the mountain dwellers of Afghanistan, that their spirit is free. And this is way before any of these wars, that they have a free spirit. No one can take over them physically or intellectually, right, or in mind. And he then spoke about the position of Afghanistan in Asia. And he said, that Afghanistan takes the position of the heart of Asia. And if the heart is working and healthy and prospering, then the entirety of Asia will be prospering. And if the heart is failing, then Asia will be failing. So this is, and, and uh, it was interesting that um, it was uh, Molavi Muttaqi who also quoted Iqbal in our very first meeting about the heart and the position of Afghanistan in Asia. But coming back to uh, the physical realities, so before going to Afghanistan, I obviously had somewhat of a preconceived notion of what it might look like, uh, you know, bombed checkpoints everywhere. Tanks on the street. This was literally what the image that I had because of Western media. Um, floggings on 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 the streets, right? Hands being chopped off and flying everywhere. Um, in reality, we landed in Kabul. Um, I was with a colleague from the delegation, and the first thing I said to him, as soon as we got off the airport, got the sense of the air, the, the heat, and the airport and the people outside. Was to me, it felt like Pakistan twenty years ago. I remember visiting with my parents when they were alive, and it felt like Pakistan 20 years ago. Meaning, it just felt like a normal airport, normal people going about doing their business. When we got onto uh, finally getting onto the streets of Kabul from the airport itself, there were hardly any checkpoints. For the for what I had imagined, there was not many, unless we went to official buildings. Um, the streets were clean. Okay. Really. Some yeah. From the reason why I keep on mentioning this is. I obviously, I'm not going to compare Afghanistan to England. And they, the, the officials also told us, don't compare us to London and Paris. You know, we, we still have a lot to do. I compare it to Pakistan. And obviously, when I go to Pakistan, the streets are not as clean as they should be based on our Islamic teachings. Whereas uh, the, the streets of Kabul, I saw, were very clean. Very well kept and taken care of. Uh, the people went, uh, uh, you know, doing their daily businesses. I saw men, but also women on the streets. They weren't all in burqa. I mean, that's a misconception. They don't cover their face, all of them. Some of them uh, had head covering. Some of them had lighter head covering. They were walking past officials. Officials were not saying anything to them. Also, another interesting thing was before we went, we had heard that the Taliban had banned women from going to the parks. Okay. Yes, I, and, I remember that. Yeah, and then what was really interesting was we went to a vocation center for widows, which is run by Human Aid and advocacy. Um, and there were like a few hundred widows there. They're doing a really good work. And after that, we were running late for I think I believe it was Asr Salah. So we came out of the vocation center. We were kind of rushing. I was slightly late. I had to go somewhere else before. And I was not part of the delegation. And I was running after the mosque. And as I was, you know, hastening towards the mosque, all of a sudden, I heard like, you know, screaming and, you know, sounds of fun and adventure. And as I looked to my left, there I saw a park. It was open. Men on one side, women there as well at the same time. So I had to stop there. And I quickly made a video of myself saying, Look, we've heard that Taliban have closed all parks to men and women, and here are hundreds of women, okay, you know, half the amount of men in the same park at the same time. And there are officials, you know, walking past. So for me that was an eye opener that sometimes we hear something on media. Maybe it might may have been about a certain specific park because there could have been other influences taking place, but certainly not the generic of what's, what's going on. And it's not the norm, a normative position of the Taliban. So for me, that was an eye-opener. And that was another preconceived notion of mine that was completely annihilated and broken. And also, you know, in the West, when by the time news gets to you, wh- however specific it may be, it comes to you as... Taliban ban girls' education, right? But it doesn't mention... Actually, primary schools are open. And actually, uh, it's not all types of education. Medicine, they can carry on. Education, you know, becoming teachers. They can have vocation. They can carry on. They can carry on. It's only... Um, secular specific education. The headline
0: is stripped of context Yes and that's when, the problem When when actually context is everything particularly in, in cases like a- this And
1: unfortunately I think the problem is we live in a day and age of social media and the only thing people are doing is they're scrolling that's our habit we scroll we just read the title and make up our world view about a people that we have never met probably never will meet and we have now garnered this position in our minds of what they are about and the monsters they are so this this for me this was an eye-opener the physical element here we were taken to a girl's school primary school and again there were girls there that looked happy. For me, it was painful because we've come from the West and two of the classes were held outside under the heat of the sun. And I'm, I'm glad and alhamdulillah that human aid uh, following that uh, have decided that that school, they will be funding and working on that school to build classrooms for those girls. Excellent. So alhamdulillah, so these are the small drops, I think, where we need to begin. This is where we need to start. But
0: yeah. you're right. I mean, if, 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 if uh, you know, if asked... I would also uh, assume that uh, Afghanistan is, uh, is firstly not as clean as you describe it, but also that it's full of people carrying Kalashnikovs and, and armed and walking about and threatening people and telling them what to do and what not to do. And it's, it's largely because of, um, of the kind of narrative that we're fed. But also, um, I would I would go as far as to accuse my own laziness. Uh, but what you did was to physically go there in order to see for yourselves. Um, I'm assuming because it was only a week long or eight days of visits, you didn't venture outside of Kabul. Am I agreeing? We did
1: go. We went to Pakman. We went to Kapisa, Najran. Okay. We went to a few uh, closer towns outside of Kabul. We obviously couldn't go further because we wanted to do as much we can in the specific location. But we did go to the villages and mountainsides. But,
0: but obviously, I mean, the news that two years on, from the, deep, the, 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 the escape of the Americans, that you found a country that is in a way stable. Yes, very stable. That is functioning, a society that's functioning. And the government that's, how did you feel the relationship between the government and the people? I mean, did anyone come up to you and say, listen, I, I, don't, I don't really like the Taliban, I wish that we had something else?
1: Okay, so to, I'll directly answer that first and then uh, um, one of the discussions we had with one of the ministers from Amr um, al-Ma'roof and Nahil Munkar. munkar So there were cases where most of the people I met, they were like, they support Taliban because of the peace and stability that they bring to the country and the security. Uh, there was a given. Everyone agreed on that, that from the locals to the minister, everyone. Uh, the only thing was that they wished that the Taliban uh, could do more for girls' education and... The important thing is, the Taliban themselves realize they're appreciative of it and they are working towards that. And we will come to that later on in more detail. But in terms of the local public and their interaction with the ministries and the government, we went to, and, and you know, before I went to Afghanistan, again, it's from the images that have stuck with me from the, you know, the, the, the previous takeover of um, men lashing and whipping women, right? That image was there, that they'll be their police force will be going around with sticks and they will be doing that. Zero times did I see that, number one. And then best of all, we went to the ministry of Amr Bil Ma'roof and Nahi Anil Munkar, which is more of an advisory ministry. And we spoke to the minister. His name is Khalid al-Hanafi. And tra- tall, broad man, towering figure. Very soft-spoken, smiling, very calm, very calm, very sincere. And um, we spoke to him. And it was an eye-opener. I mean, we said to him that, look, you know, uh, one of the sheikhs, he said to Amolvi uh, uh, al-Hanafi, that, look, you know, we've been told that there's a lot of strictness and a lot of harshness. This is certainly not the prophetic tradition. And he said, no. There's no such thing. And then he gave us a few stories. One story that stuck with me was there was a taxi driver. I mean, he got into some kind of altercation with someone, a Taliban official or government official from the ministry of Amr bil Ma'ruf. He came and after an argument, he slapped that taxi driver. That taxi driver took that all the way to the ministry of Amr al ma'ruf and lodged a complaint against that official. They did an investigation and found out that it was unfair what happened to him. So the first thing they did, they invited both of them in the same office with Khalid al-Hanafi present. And they told the official to apologize to him, number one. Then they fired him, number two. And then he himself, the minister, I mean, does this happen in the Western world? The minister himself went to that taxi driver's home to apologize to his family. So this is, as Nick Carter, you know, Sir Nick Carter says, this is Taliban have changed. The Taliban themselves say that, yeah, there are many things and many ways that we have changed. So that's why re-engagement is incredibly important. So that's the first thing. Another incident that he told us about was, first of all, about the poppy production. It's almost come to zero. It stopped in two years. How did
0: they manage to do that?
1: So they've destroyed most... And I think there was a news article a few weeks ago as well where a lot of the poppy fields have been destroyed. They're closely monitoring that this doesn't go ahead. They were
0: thriving under the Americans.
1: Exactly. So what the Americans couldn't achieve in 20 years the Taliban achieved in two years, we've got to, you know, give them some... Which, which, to,
0: which brings about the question, did the American, actually Americans actually added, want yeah, yeah. to end that particular Absolutely. trade? Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. So they've stopped that. And then he mentioned how there's a bridge there in Kabul somewhere where there were thousands and thousands of professionals who had, you know, got, you know, they, they, they got under the influence addiction and they just started living under this bridge. The Taliban, and they, they were just there, they they, they, they continued to be there during the uh, American occupation and NATO occupation. Taliban came, took them away, stopped the drugs and rehabilit- started rehabilitating them, all right? Hundreds of thousands of them. And and I was hearing this and I'm thinking, why haven't we heard of this? Why don't we get to hear about this? So I stopped the, uh, the minister and I said, um, you're telling us this, why don't you... Put this up on on media, on the news, so that us in the West can hear about all the achievements you've done, you've got in two years. And he said, "It's already out there. You need to find it." And then he and he's a very humble guy, down to earth. He took out his phone, and he showed us straight. Went onto YouTube, and showed us the videos in Pashto and in Farsi. I think it's our duty to kind of translate into English, Arabic, uh, Turkish. I mean, I mean, the way I look at it is, I'm putting myself in their position. They've just ousted, they've, they've fought fiercely against the West, right? over 50 countries of the West. Why should they now be in a position to explain themselves? Exactly.
0: I, mean, exactly. I, I don't get that. that. That's, that's a very good argument. I mean, they, they're, they're trying to run a country which is being uh, strangulated
1: Absolutely. by the international yeah.
0: community. And um, then we blame them for not telling the yeah. story yeah. Exactly. or not telling it uh, well. Uh, Non-speaking, clear language. language, or in yeah, yeah. So, uh, so yeah, that's that's. But I think that's just a very to add to point. that,
1: so, so the organisation Prosper Afghanistan, I think they're taking it upon themselves to now actually get those videos and a lot of these things that are happening and get them translated into English. So I think they're they're going to be doing a wonderful job to give an actual picture of what's happening in Afghanistan.
0: Let's talk about girls' education yes. because obviously this is this is the favourite subject for, for, for the world media and for commentators and people who think that they know more about Afghanistan than the Afghani people themselves. So um, the conception is that the Taliban are of uh, a school of thought in Islam that sees that uh, women are not to leave their houses, uh, that women must be absolutely secluded, and that they are not to enter into the public sphere and public spaces, uh, such as marketplaces, such as... um, you know, shopping malls, um, parks, and in the case that we're discussing now, schools. Um, And that maybe uh, young girls um, can be educated to learn how to read and write, but nothing beyond that. So colleges, universities, even high schools, um, girls aren't allowed to gain their higher studies. That's been the, the reason why IMF has withheld what's due to Afghanistan and the Afghani people. That's why uh, many uh, countries have a political or diplomatic standoff with Afghanistan. That's why there are some calls from powerful institutions and agencies around the world calling for a boycott on Afghanistan because of human rights and particularly because of how it treats its own women.
1: Tell us what you saw. So firstly, I want to make it clear to all media and everyone listening that almost every minister we spoke to, this was at the forefront, girls' education. But um, I wrote an article about this, um, and I took mostly from two of the ministries that we went to because they were the most relevant to us, and their responses kind of corroborate everyone else's responses. So, Which ministries are these? uh, So yeah, the two ministries are the first ministry that we visited, uh, within an hour or so of us landing was the foreign ministry so we spoke to the foreign minister sheikh uh, Moulvi abdul uh, sheikh molvi muttaqi, muttaqi and his spokesperson uh, abdul qahar balqi so both of them and late a few days later we also met the uh, the um, former uh, higher education minister abdul baqi as well um so firstly just to introduce how we started speaking about girls education so the very first thing that I, I kind of recall and remember Abdul, uh, with Balkhi, him raising his hands like this uh, and translating what uh, Sheikh Muttaqi had to say. He said the Taliban do not believe that girls' education is haram and we have never advocated that. However, they moved on to mentioning where Abdul, uh, with Muttaqi saying that in Afghanistan we have 10 million students, both boys and girls. Girls can study up to what they call jamaad shashum, meaning year six. So that covers the entirety of primary school. Once they get to secondary, they then have four avenues that they can still continue. So it's not like um, education has completely been stopped for girls who, um, you know, uh, are are at a secondary age. Four avenues. Number one, if they want to continue in medicine, Any related field within medicine, they may continue all the way till university. They have uh, facilities, segregated facilities for them, okay? Number two, if they want to continue in education to become teachers of the nation, they can continue with that. Number three... Uh, if they want to go into vocational studies, so skills-based education, they can continue with that as well. And number four, Darul Ulooms. So girls can continue their studies all the way in Alimiyya till the end. And I remember Muttaki saying, and in our country, he said, that Darul Ulooms combine secular and Islamic sciences within the Darul Ulooms. So in a sense, if girls want to continue their secular studies, they can do so through the medium of Darwin, where they will be trained in secular studies as well. But then he said there are a couple, a couple or you can say three things that have impacted their suspension, not ban. This is the difference. So they haven't banned girls. It's a temporary suspension. Yes, it has been long and we appreciate what the girls will be feeling or some of the parents will be feeling. Uh, but I think we need to also look at the bigger picture behind this. So one of the things that both uh, uh, Molvi Muttaki mentioned and also Moulvi Abdul baqi the former minister of higher education, said was it is to avoid ikhtilaf. And I'll talk about that in detail. And number two... If
0: you translate that into English, yes. what do you mean by ikhtilaf? So by
1: ikhtilaf is to avoid any kind of infighting amongst the Taliban because they've just come into power. It's a new government. They are, for them, the priority... stability and security of the country and it can be compromised because of this and i'll I'll explain why that is as well Um, the second thing is intellectual colonialism and i feel the taliban recognize this and realize this it's unfortunate that it's the girls education that takes a hit on that but they have no other choice and that's coupled with the idea is they had to revert back to what they were doing initially because the overall afghan culture outside of the cities. Uh, in rural parts of Afghanistan, which is a majority of Afghanistan, girls normally do stay at home. So that's where you know the background is. Now let's talk about the Ikhthilaf, uh, uh, linked with intellectual colonialism. So the former minister of education Abdul Baqi, said that when they started, everything was going smoothly. Okay? They had girls and boys education all the way till uh, secondary college and also universities, but then the more conservative ulama they came to see within the universities that the policy the government policy of segregation was not being held there was intermixing and in dancing and consumption of alcohol again which is against the policy of the country and against sharia so that's when they took this matter and they saw this growing in so many universities and the difference is uh, he mentioned that there are a certain number i think 20 or 40 universities that are government funded as an Afghan government funded, and about 150 that were funded by foreign aid. And they felt it's those universities that were funded by foreign aid and foreign investments by the NGOs, that that's where the problems were. And not only that, there was this effort to now divide the students or the general public against their government. And it's at that, that point that the conserv- more conservative ulama, they took this matter straight to the Amir al muminin their supreme leader in Afghanistan. And they were basically forced to accept this at that moment, but as a suspension. Because, like I mentioned, they've just come out of four decades of war. They have other priorities like the economy, the poverty, the security, um, because they, they still had, up until last year, attacks from ISIS who consider the Taliban a non-Muslim entity, so they're still fighting back on that. That's why they had security for us to protect us from groups like ISIS. So that's the first thing they want to avoid. Ijtihad. They, I mean, what I saw amongst the Taliban, I, I was taken aback again. Here we heard that they're this monstrous people, you know, who are just out there wanting to kill. That's their hobby. When we spoke, at, we spoke to them about you know the war and now that the war's over how they feel and all of them in humility they said we want peace yeah. we want our children to live in peace uh, and it was you know it was it was a moment of reflection for me that this is completely opposite to what we hear yeah. so moving on to uh, what happened then so as soon as they suspended girls education because their idea was that we want to have segregation Okay? We want to educate our children on our own terms, with our own Afghan values, and most importantly to them, under Islamic teachings. And this is what the West did not want. Hence, all the funding that those universities was getting was pulled out. Now, the financial um, challenge, um, the teachers currently still teaching they really appreciate them because their wages were then halved to continue teaching for now. So before they could continue with that funding, now that funding's pulled, something has to be suspended. So they revert back to, at that moment, to their old Afghan culture um, where women stay at home. But again, it's a suspension until they can facilitate for them on their own terms. Did they
0: they, uh, give you an idea of um, what they were thinking about in terms of until when, the suspension?
1: No. I mean, they all said, we want this back as soon as possible. This was their idea. And the feeling that I got is they are working on this behind the scenes. That was a clear feeling I gathered from um, the former minister for higher education. He himself is a champion of girls' education, and he himself spoke to us about this. I mean, the Taliban have their own daughters and they want them to be educated. They've had to put the ban on them as well. So what they feel is the indoctrination of Western values, ideas, ideals. So for me, putting myself in their shoes, they were basically saying to us in those meetings, we fought bravely, fiercely. We gave our lives, our blood, our sweat, our children to fight them physically, Why are we now going to facilitate their ideologies in our universities? Why are we going to allow them to corrupt the minds of our children? Especially,
0: I mean, one could, I mean, see their point of view. Especially that, even in the West, education philosophies are being discussed and whether they're they're valid or not. You know, education standards, whether you know they're they're achieving the kinds of levels that need and are required for modern life. So, uh, the fact that uh, somewhere. Um, a society is free to think and to implement its own philosophy and uh, its own man, you know, method of, uh, of implementing an education system must surely be be represented. You know, the globalization of education is not the the best of ideas. I, w- yeah, I, w- I would have thought. absolutely.
1: Just one point to add there, which I just just remembered now. It was Abdul Baqi, the former minister of education, higher education. He actually mentioned to us uh, in this particular meeting, for some reason, there were only three delegates. Three of us were there. And in this meeting, he actually mentioned to us that as soon as Kabul was taken over, the Americans were ousted. One of the first things that Amir al-Mu'mineen said to him was, I want you to employ 1,000 female teachers straight away. That was one of the first things that he was entrusted with. 1,000 female teachers so that we can facilitate girls' education in our universities.
0: I mean, this is um, this is all quite impressive, I have to say. I mean, what you're saying is impressive and also to a large degree uh, understandable. Obviously, there'll be those Who say, well, you know, why is it only the the girls sector, uh, the girls education sector that's being hit? Why not girls and boys sector? Since I mean, the 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 same remains um, that uh, there's been the withdrawal of funds from foreign entities and the like. Um, But I'd like to um, see whether you got any idea of what the leadership, the government of Afghanistan is thinking for the future of Afghanistan. Right now, I'd imagine that emerging from the past 40 years, 50 years, whatever, that they're trying to rebuild. And uh, obviously rebuilding a society takes time. Um, It can't be done in in a, a year, two years, probably even five years. But I'm imagining that that's what's occupying them. But what are they building Afghanistan for? What are they foreseeing for the future of Afghanistan? And bear in mind that Afghanistan is a landlocked country um, in one of the most volatile, one of the most important, one of the most resourceful regions of the entire world. It's an area where, for instance, you have the uh, the new Silk Road, the Chinese Silk Road, passing by. So this gives also sight to the strategic positioning of Afghanistan uh, vis-à-vis the Chinese versus the Americans and so on. Um, Afghanistan sits uh, on the borders of Pakistan. Uh, Indian politics is heavily influential. Um, it's not far off from Russia. Um, so, Iran also you have so basically how do uh, how do the taliban see the future of afghanistan amid all of these which could be immense opportunities but definitely they are quite considerable
1: challenges um what i liked most about their approach to all of this and we spoke to them about in detail about various different topics um is their simple principles I was taken aback by them, and I remember uh, Abdul karhar Balchi. He came to meet us, and he said, "We have two policies uh, in terms of oppression and migration, for instance." And they've said to China as well that, for example, when it comes to the Uyghur migrants and the refugees who are fleeing oppression, we firstly say that we speak out against oppression wherever it may be, and we support the oppressed. So if a refugee comes to Afghanistan, uh, we will not send them back and we will welcome them with open arms and we'll take care of them, number one. Number two, um, they mentioned, however, anyone who we have welcomed to our land, we will not allow them to harm people or you know residents of any other country. We cannot allow any plan like that to go ahead. So is there a very simple um, you know, outlook to the world? At the same time, for example, they have their close eyes on Pakistan yeah. and they see Pakistan. And not only that, they've been seeing Pakistan. And for them, uh, there was one of the ministers who actually said, you know, he said, look, I, we don't consider, for example, this the state of Pakistan to be a Muslim state. And we said, oh, how is, how is that so? And he said, they are not governed by Sharia, but they are governed by, in, in his Pashto accent, he said, ayin the constitution, which is you know, still still there since the time of the British. Um, and they feel that, for example, I mean, and I feel, for example, um, you know, with what Imran Khan said to the Americans, you know, I think he was absolutely right in saying absolutely not to the Americans to continue their drone strikes. They affect children and innocent people. They have seen Pakistan, um, you know, which has been a republic and it's been a democracy championing Islam. They have seen the, the the situation of it now, currently as we speak, with Imran Khan being imprisoned. So they are seeing all of this, and I'm trying to put myself in their position. And they would be saying to them, "Do we want a type of democracy where which can be, uh, you know, where the West can intervene uh, and at whim, you know, get rid of, so as to say, some of their leadership?" Uh, whenever they like, whenever they speak the truth or if their foreign policy does not align, they are seeing this from very close quarters. And that's why they are not only having a policy that's in line with the Emara, but they are actually becoming more and more confident that, look, had we become a republic, for example, this would be our state 70 years down the line again. We fought 40 years. We are going to govern on our own terms, we're gonna be open to the world. This is what they all said. We want friendly relationships. If you come to us with friendship, with we don't want your charity. Okay, we don't want you, we want your investments, we want your businesses to come in, we want our country to progress. They are working day and night. Okay. And they are saying if you if you come with friendly intentions, you will, you know, it will be met with Afghan hospitality. But at the same time, if you come with intentions to, you know, to to subjugate us, then you will be met by Afghan bravery. And this is their idea. So for us, it's important, I think. And this is why it's important. The EU have opened their embassy uh, there. We the British here, British Muslims, we need to push our government. What's the position of
0: the British government now? They
1: They don't have an embassy there at the moment. And this is what Tobias Elwood was pushing for until he was ridiculed and he had to delete his video. This is it. I mean, I think it's time that we step aside from the rhetoric from the West and look at ground realities because there are people who are being hurt. There are people who are suffering. I saw this at close range. I remember, and I would like to share this here, we were driving and it was beautiful mountainous scenery, and then we see a broken house, you know, and then this very, very old man, I can still not take my mind off him, um, and he came out, he could barely talk, he could barely walk, he was just standing there, so straight away our car, all of our cars stopped. And we had our human aid and advocacy uh, people with us. So they had their envelopes of zakat. So they took those packets. And, uh, you know, he explained how all his sons, all of his sons were murdered during this war. And I still re- remember, you know, looking at his face and the tears that f- flowing down his face. No news agency is going to cover that. Even if they can cover that, no one can feel that, what we felt. And on top of that, how can we ever come close to feeling his pain, and yet from afar, we just pinpoint just one thing, and that's girls' education. Not understanding, okay, why are the Taliban saying no to girls' education? They don't. They want to free their country of intellectual uh, colonization. Up until and they, they've suspended that up until they can facilitate it on their own terms. This is what they want: a free education, critical education on their own terms. Um, I I met another man uh, and we went to Kapisa at one point. We met so many elders there. Um, Why didn't we see so many young? A lot of them have been killed, unfortunately. In Kapisa, the French army was stationed there. And this elder, you know, he said to me that, um, you know, these French uh, soldiers, they gave our children sweets by day and bullets by night. Another one said that at night they came And he had two teenage sons. And they shot both of them in front of his eyes, point black on their heads. I mean, these are war crimes we have to think about documenting here. And then there was this one uh, smiling, elderly, um, flamboyant man, Walam Jan, his name is. And uh, to give you context, I was, it was like in a village and I was waiting in this queue for the toilet. So you have to walk through a field and there's a hut at the end. So I was just waiting there. And he came along. We had a, a, other friends who spoke Pashto in English. And he said something in Pashto with a big smiling face. And I straight away wanted to know what, what it was that he said. And the translator said, this elderly man, Gulam Jan, is saying that your delegation are heroes. So me with a confused face, I said, how is that even possible? You are the ones who suffered for for decades of war and trauma, and you're calling us heroes? And I asked the translator, ask him why he says that, because I don't see that. And he said, because every foreigner that I have met up until this day has come to kill me and kill my people. You are the first foreign delegation that have come to Kapisa for friendship and to and for peace and to spread peace. That's why you are heroes.
0: So tell me about the delegation. Now you're back. Yes. What messages do you have? I mean, obviously you're here, you're talking about all these things, but do you have in mind anything to say to the government, to the British people? to raise awareness of the reality in, in Afghanistan, of the thinking of the Taliban that isn't, isn't being reflected, of the suffering of the people of Afghanistan, not only now, but over generations. What, what, what's your plans now? Do you, do you intend to go back maybe in a year's time or the such?
1: So firstly, um, I think we need to look back at the cases of people like the MP, uh, Tobias Elwood, and look at when they did speak the truth, what happened to them? What did the media, how did they treat them? They had to go back on their words, otherwise their career was at stake. Some of our delegation members who spoke out, they were maligned. Um, and this is exactly what intellectual colonialism is and what has happened in the past uh, to Africa and other you know, previously colonized uh, countries and lands. So we need to look carefully at these cases like Thomas, uh, uh, Tobias Elwood and look at why is it that Western media is so up in arms against Afghanistan. It's almost as though the innocent people of Afghanistan do not exist. It's as though the tears of the mothers have never been shed. It's as though, um, and and the reason why I'm saying this, from that BBC uh, radio station, one of the security analysts, and I think I mentioned this before as well, he said, oh, it's peaceful in Afghanistan because the Taliban are not bombing. He just overlooked 20 years of American and NATO bombardment of the country and he thinks that's okay. He thinks he can go on on Western media and make a claim like that. Uh, It's Western media that needs to be more mature and more reflective and more humane and they need to stop demonizing these people who want to get on with their lives and want to prosper and progress in their country. The Western media is, you know, an institution that I would speak to and say, be more fair, you know, be much more fair. If you're against girls' education, that's fine. OK, it's their land. For now, they feel that suspension is a priority so that they can have stability and security. Let them be. What are we going to do for the 1.5 million orphans in that country? What are we going to do for them? What are we going to do for the millions of widows who are in that country? If we have an issue or if the West has an issue with the Taliban, then let it be. But what about the innocent? How, wh- where is our you know, human connection? So we and how do we get that connection? How do we move forward? There has to be re-engagement. There's no other way. And, you know, former general uh, Nick Carter has clearly said there needs to be an engagement with the Taliban. And when he was asked about security and he said, look, yes, they have their challenges, but they have secured the land. There is security there. I saw this with my eyes. I mean, we drove everywhere. And like I said, if you were to ask me in one sentence to summarize it, Kabul to me felt like Pakistan did 20 years ago when I went with my parents. They just need help and support to prosper. That Those 20 years are only going to be meaningful if they have the support of the world community. So re-engagement um you know stopping these inhumane sanctions on the uh, on the country because who do they hurt and harm the most those right at the bottom the innocent afghans so that needs to stop in terms of myself on a personal level what am i going to do Um, I believe we need to work on every strata that we can. And I I strongly believe in small drops. You know, they create large oceans. I have my own weekend madrasa that I founded uh, in 2014, Fatima Elizabeth Francisere. So we've decided that we are going to support human aid and advocacy in two things. Number one, with the orphanage to try and increase the number of orphans that can be, uh, you know, housed inside these orphanages, number one. Number two, to support the building or rebuilding of that primary girl school in Pagman, but not just the financial support. We want to go a step further. And this is my plea to the Muslim community here in diaspora. That is not just the money that they need, They've clearly said, we don't just need your charity. It's our skills that we have. It's our thought processes as Muslims. So what I decided to do, and I'm going to put this to our parents at our madrasa, is that alongside the financial support is to maybe have another trip of professionals to go to the orphanages. These children, seeing them up close, singing poetries for their parents who they have lost, I can't explain in words how it felt. It is a very painful experience. And then for, you know, the Western media to forget that they cluster bombed the land and think that, oh, uh, Afghanistan is only safe because Taliban haven't been bombing it. It's beyond me. It's, It's caricature of the situation. So coming back to the school, so to take professionals who are invested in mental health Uh, and they can support children who are suffering trauma of war they were born in war and this is the first time they're seeing peace Uh, right so how can we support their traumas if any of them are suffering from mental health how we can maybe train some of the teachers some of the staff there and start speaking to them about that uh, to train some of the ch- teachers at the school to talk about special needs, especially related to the trauma of war, and how we can help them and support them, so they can have fun, you know much more. When I spoke to some of the girls in um, the primary school, it was it was I mean I wanted to talk to them on a human level. So my questions to them were you know what games do you play at school and they they gave like a version which the translator explained of cops and robbers where you know you chase each other and then i said what about sports which sports do you like the most because i was trying to you know gather an idea of how can we help them and so what sports do you like oh we love volleyball all of them at once in in, in unison so you know they they have so much and i also asked them um uh, and this kind of, for me, was interesting because of thinking of inte- intellectual colonialism coming from Pakistan, where almost every second person wants to come to the West. I asked the girls there, would you like to come to England with us? And all of them said, uh, one of them started doing this, no, 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 we don't want to come. So they haven't been impacted by, the, you know, the flash uh, of the West, because at the end of the day, we both live lives. The people of Afghanistan live lives, we live lives. Um, you know, we, we live it in a very different way under capitalism, materialism. And since coming back from Afghanistan, actually, I've been thinking a lot about my own reflection on myself and how much I have been influenced by the materialism of the West and the simplicity of the Afghans, where they can live in their house with their cows and their it's goats. It's inspiring, isn't it? Very inspiring. And then when you see their faces, they, they shone. I saw that confidence in their face, that bravery. They're calm, they don't have much to eat, but they will never ask you. They they don't have anything. They will sacrifice their only sheep they have in their garden for you, just for hospitality, and they would go hungry. These are the people who are being demonized here in the West. Thank you very much. Barak Allah.
0: Mashallah. Jazakallah khair. Barak Allah.
1: That was excellent.